And welcome back to your favorite G.I. Joe podcast show. Do you hear that different music? Well, you don't right now because I'm talking, but that is because we are in season five of Knowing is Half the Podcast, talking about G.I. Joe Extreme. I am Ray Stacanis. I'm Robert Clark Chan. I'm Gina Ippolito. And there is no nonsense happening here. We we usually would have had about three minutes of crosstalk before they actually said their names, if they said their names at all. <laughs> Thank you, Robert Clark Chan and TV's Gina Ippolito. We're professionals now, for heaven's sake. (laughs) You guys are trying to show off because we have a very special guest. We've been doing this three quarters of our lives, for God's sakes. (laughs) Felt like forever. (laughs) True, though. It's true. Uh, And we're still going, Chan. Aren't you excited? (laughs) I am not. I feel for you, Chan. I've been in that boat myself. (laughs) We are joined today by, you heard that voice. You've heard him on the show before. He is the writer of episode one of G.I. Joe Extreme, so you know, you know we're going to have him back. Buzz Dixon, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you so much for having me, Ray. Gina, Roberts, great to, to be back on the air with you. Likewise. Thanks for joining us. We haven't talked... We haven't talked to you in a little while. And yes, likewise, of course, my goodness. But uh, uh, Buzz, I wanted to ask you because we've spent the last two seasons of Knowing Us Half the Podcast mm-hmm. doing <laughs> Deke era G.I. Joe, a property you were not involved with. And I thought if it's not if it's not if it's not too much or asking too much, uh, is, is there, do you have any thoughts on Deke era G.I. Joe? Any stories about it? Because obviously your name and G.I. Joe are very much tied together and your presence or lack thereof was definitely felt in the Deke era of G.I. Joe. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say this. I got I got a phone call from Deke soon after they acquired the property, said, would you like to write some scripts for us? I said, okay, here's my price. And they go, ooh, too much. And that was the last communication I had with them. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and that holds up based on everything else that we heard. <laughs> uh, they, they like to cut their corners over at Deke. Um, they, the fact they, that there were a handful of great episodes was a, was a wonder to us all. They, they... It's it's been said that DIC stands for do it cheaper. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll jump ahead. I did end up working for Deke on their Beanie and Cecil show, their reboot that they attempted to do. Oh, wow. where they had um, cut the corners so severely, we were explicitly told have held frame reaction shots for at least 10 seconds after every joke. <laughs> so just characters with their eyes bugging out, responding to a joke. And and the show, they never even got around to doing my episode because the show was canceled long before that. Uh, they, oh, they man. Were no- now I feel like we need to do an episode of that. Yeah, well, they were notoriously cheap <laughs> bastards. We, uh, uh, Buzz, we just finished out that, that series and the last two episodes they had were, were clip shows and they were just so strangely done 
because oh, there yeah. was there was no real narrative holding the clip shows together. It wasn't like a, 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 a oh here's a look back on the series. It, they were just sort of slapped together, and it was so strange. It's such a strange way to end a series. Well, I, I can believe that because the the same thing that happened to Full Moon Productions, uh, which was the the Charles Band Company, uh, happened with Deke. And and in Deke's case, they deliberately plotted it this way. It was kind of a reverse Ponzi scheme, if you can imagine that. <laughs> yep. It would cost at that era roughly six hundred thousand an episode to do an animated show. Okay, and I mean that's for like a network quality animated half hour show. Uh huh. And Deke would put in a bid. Typically, uh, you you didn't get the six hundred thousand from the studio. You got it. They'd give you maybe four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, and you would negative finance the episode, hoping to make it back on the on the the flip end, so to speak, with uh, syndication. What the toy shows did was to get rid of a profit motive. They viewed the whole show as part of their advertising budget, and they just went, well, you know, it's cost us this much money to get our advertising on the air because the show would be offered for free to local stations as long as the toy company got half the advertising time. And the stations are going, wow, we get a you know, free 30-minute show and uh, we get to sell half the advertising time, but we don't have to put up any of the money. Sure thing. So the, the economics were turned on its head. Deke would go to these toy companies and say, hey, instead of 600000 per episode, we can do it for 500000 an episode. And the toy companies would go, okay, sure. And they would give Deke the money. The problem was it still costs 600000 to do the show, even a crappy Deke version. So Deke would then go to two more toy companies and say, we can do your shows for 500000 And they'd say, sure. And then Deke would take, uh, you know, 50000 from each of those shows and apply it to the first show. Now they got a problem because they only have 450000 for those two shows. <laughs> so they get four more shows. And you see where this goes. It's a reverse Ponzi scheme. <laughs> they eventually get down to the point, like I described with the Beanie and Cecil show, where they're telling writers, uh, every time you have a joke, hold on the other character's frozen reaction for 10 seconds, you know, because we just have to eat up time without spending it on animation. Yes, those two, those last two episodes very much had the feel of, crap, we ran out of money, do a clip show and add nothing else to it. Yep. They were just, they were only a few years ahead of their time because then you get to uh, like your uh, uh, Space Ghost Coast to Coast where, you know, like the joke was the long hold and <laughs> it was true. it actually worked if they had true. actually yeah, like. They were doing it ironically. <laughs> and they were doing it as a a talk show where the reaction makes logical sense. Yes, yes. If you're, if you're doing a story, if you're actually trying to tell a story and it's moving forward and somebody says a joke and then everything freezes every single time, <laughs> well, you know. That's, that's the part of those clip shows that really bothered me, though, is because I know how those would have aired, you know, five days in a week. 
And so Monday through Friday, you'd have five episodes of Deke, which means that for those clip shows, they would literally be showing you clips of things on Thursday of a show you saw on Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> so that's was the really annoying part to me is they were only using season two clips for those shows yeah. and they weren't really trying to put together a narrative and they would lean very heavily on the last four or five episodes they just showed. So I, you know, it, it's mind boggling that this happened. You know, we were told I, going into it, it ends with clip shows and I didn't want to believe it, but here we are. I, w- I would guess knowing Deke that they, they emphasize the last four or five shows simply because those were the ones that they had hanging around the office and they didn't have to go out and, uh, you know, dig the stuff out of the, the archives. They were cheap. Even, they were incredible. Even the cheap. Metalhead episode where they talk about Metalhead's grandmother, they didn't even mention the season one episode. That's all about Metalhead's grandmother. Like, yeah, it's like what that's are we? True. What are we doing? Yeah, you know, it's it's that attention to detail that <laughs> uh, makes Deke so fondly remembered to this very day. That's right. That's right. Now, enough enough for that season four talk, though. We're here into season five. This is GI Joe Extreme, which aired from 1995 to 1997. So there's about a three year gap from Deke ending to this beginning. But to you at home, it was more like a three week gap. Huh? Mm-hmm. See what I did there? Mm-hmm. It's the magic of podcasts. Because <laughs> here we are. And this an extreme was really the thing in the 90s. You know, those of us who really like Ugh. lived in the 90s Ugh. will remember that 90s was the neon color and extreme era where they were putting the word X, uh, uh, the letter X on everything. You had a, a soda named Surge that had a commercial where literally a kid would drink Surge and start screaming the word Surge and running down the street as if headed to a riot. And all the other children would join him screaming the word Surge <laughs> because it was some sort of group hysteria. And, and that was normal in the 1990s. So the idea that G.I. Joe would follow suit, I mean, G.I. Joe is nothing if not someone who follows the trends, right? Yeah. This is sort of the thing. When Jurassic Park was a big deal, uh, you had G.I. Joe dinosaur hunter figures, you know? I mean, this is just... G.I. Joe sort of just for a long time, well, the toy it's line. It's interesting you bring up the G.I. Joe dinosaur hunters thing, because I had created yes. a, a comic book and show concept that I actually had um, optioned by CBS television called Dinosaur Hunters. What? And the the premise, and this was, this would have been roughly either, either just before or just after I worked on G.I. Joe. It may have been just after. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll even say this. It was just after I worked for TSR on the Buck Rogers comic because uh, uh, Chuck Wakevich did some uh, promotional art for me. Did a great job on it, by the way. But then Chuck can't do a bad job. So anyway, uh, the concept was this. These uh, They've discovered a means of time travel where they can set up a base in the past so it's anchored in the past you've got like a one to one correlation if it's if it's monday here then in the past it's monday there and you know you can't you, can, you won't have any time paradoxes is my point and to prevent having the butterfly effect as we saw in you know ray bradbury's the sound of thunder they have come to the point just before the giant asteroid smacks into the earth. And and the reason for this is they know that everything within the radius of where they are based is going to be wiped out. So there is, there's no way they can do something that will affect future generations. Whatever's going to happen is going to wipe out all life. 
They have no idea when the asteroid is going to hit, by the way. So they've got to work fast. They set up this base and they have these giant robot suits because I like giant robots. <laughs> they have these giant Absolutely. robot suits and they go out and they capture dinosaurs. They literally wrestle these suckers to the ground, put them in cages and transport them into the future to stock dinosaur parks in the future. Um, and this was what the, the story was in the ongoing, the, the comic book, uh, I was intending for it to be a miniseries. The comic book was going to be, uh, they're doing this, the asteroid hits, their time portal is shut down, but they know there is a distant outpost that has a time portal that they can reach. Uh, but they've got to now go across this insane landscape of burning jungles and terrified dinosaurs and everything else. They got to fight their way across all this to, to get to this outpost. But I pitched the idea to CBS. CBS liked it. They put a, a tiny little bit of money into developing it, and uh, then they passed on it. But um, I had put my foot print down, so to speak, and I created the concept Dinosaur Hunters. So when G.I. Joe Dinosaur, and I had pitched it to, to Hasbro. That's the other thing. I pitched it as a toy to Hasbro. Mm. A few years later, when gotcha. G.I. Joe Dinosaur Hunters, Dinosaur Hunters comes out, the, the only real similarities between the names and the fact they're trying to capture the dinosaurs. And I, I forget how they justified Joe's encountering dinosaurs or whatever. But I wrote a nice letter to their legal department and said, wow, it's really interesting. We've got this overlap here. You know, the same idea that I pitched to you, you're now incorporating elements of it. And it, it just shows how we are thinking on parallel lines. And maybe you want to think about me for some future project. Well, yeah, yeah, that's that's the way that Ray Bradbury got EC Comics to pay for the stories they were ripping off. He said, wow, I really <laughs> love the adaptation. Uh, I haven't seen my adaptation check yet. And bang, you know, there's $50. <laughs> so, <clears throat> excuse me. They, uh, they responded nicely in kind. And a short while later, they said, uh, we've got this project, uh, G.I. Joe Extreme. Would you be interested in developing it for us? And I said, of course. <laughs> so we we start developing the project, and at this time, uh, Tom Clancy was like really hot. I mean, he's still a he's still a popular writer. People still read his books, but he was really at his at the peak of his game now. And he was doing like you know Hunt for Red October, um, Some of All Fears, all of these books. And what I pitched was, let's let's flip the script on GI Joe, that the Joes have now become, because they didn't want to do this huge crowd of characters that they had before. They wanted to keep a, a smaller group of characters. I said, let's flip the script. These Joes are now the outcasts. They're the ones that are viewed as being the terrorists and whatnot. But these Joes know the truth. They know the guy who is passing himself off as being this wonderful, noble person is really this, this Blofeld-like mastermind. And unfortunately for them, he controls enough politicians, he controls enough um, news organizations and whatnot, that he can make them seem to be the renegades. And he is the, the, the good, he's a good guy, and basically the Joes need to be stopped. 
And it would be done in the sense of a Tom Clancy thriller. It would be less massive tank battles and stuff like that. And it would be much more special ops types of, you know, missions and operations. And also it would be pitched for a slightly older audience. I mean, if uh, G.I. Joe was aiming at a 12-year-old audience, I was looking at like 14 to 16 for this. They they thought that was a good idea. They they agreed to it. They um, uh, gave me feedbacks on my, my pitch and my Bible that were relatively minor, certainly things I could live with. And then two different things occurred. The thing that they had no control over was at the same time they hired me to do this, I got an offer from Penthouse Comics to become one of their editors. And this offer came to me through George Carragon, who was the editor-in-chief of Penthouse Comics. I will go into that part of the story when we wrap up the Joe portion, because that's, that's long and involved. The other thing was they put a young woman, who I will not name, uh, in charge of the um, G.I. Joe Extreme TV show. And I would write scripts and send them in, and she would send them back saying, I'm not going to submit this to Hasbro. And I said, well, why not? She says, well, there's things in it I don't like, and I don't think we should do it this way. And I said, you know, I've, I've actually like worked for these guys in the past. <laughs> I was a story editor for them. I, I think they'll like this, but why do we do this? Why don't we send it in to them and let them object to it, and then we'll change it to what they want? Yeah. And she, she absolutely refused to send my stuff in unless it was changed to her specifications. Well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make a living here, and I'm being torn. Literally, I'm bi-coastal. I'm spending two weeks in uh, New York working for Penthouse, and then I'm two weeks in Los Angeles also working for Penthouse because I was trying to get an animation deal up and running for him, but at the same time trying to do the G.I. Joe stuff. And um, I would make the changes per her request because it was just easier than fighting with her. They would send, she'd send the script in and we would get back revisions from Hasbro that inevitably said, why didn't you do this instead of that? And what they wanted done was exactly what I had written in the first draft of the script. Oh. So oh I, I wrote the first three scripts for the series. Uh, I believe my name is only on the very first one, the pilot. Uh, I, I willingly let them take my name off the other two if, if it's not on there. I don't seem to recall it being on there, but it may be. I'm not 100% sure. But I was, I was happy to hand it over to somebody else, and I forgot who, you know, who was the next stormtrooper through the door that uh, got that unenviable task. But the toy line and the series did not catch on as well as they had hoped. And eventually the, the line was canceled and the, the series was canceled, which is a pity because I think we had, you know, the potential of, of booting the G.I. Joe um, franchise up a notch. They could have still kept the classic one foot figure for the collectors. They could have kept the three and three quarter inch action figures for the younger kids. And they could have had another line that, maybe less toys, 
but more in media and things like that that would have been appealing to teenagers. I, I, you know, as I said about the about episode three, we 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 being myself and this woman just realized this was not going to work out, and she was she was too firmly ensconced for there to be any chance of her being cut loose. So I tendered my resignation. It was received, you know, in the blink of an eye. And uh, at that point, I went over to work full time with um, uh, Penthouse Comics. Interesting. Wow. My good. So I actually just looked it up and this is kind of a crazy thing. So your name is listed on the first episode, but not on episodes two and three. What mm-hmm. really surprised me is the writer who's listed as episode two is Julia Lewald. Uh, who is the tremendous writer of, you know, creator of the X-Men animated series. Mm -hmm. So really interesting to see that she was involved in this. And then later on down the line, I saw that Len Wein was credited with writing an episode as well. So it does seem like they did at least uh, through you and through them, try to bring it back to some of the comic book writers uh, for this series, uh, which is what Sunbow did so ridiculously well. And obviously Dick chose not dick deke chose not to do that might as well call him dick who cares <laughs> <laughs> um so it is so your name officially not listed on two episodes two and three but you are saying you did have a hand in writing both of those episodes i i certainly did well let me put it this way having having seen only the pilot and i saw only the pilot because they sent a, a copy to me um i turned in two scripts they accepted them they paid for them um they they made such extensive changes that when I turned in my resignation, I said, I'm I'm not looking for credit on these two. Do with them as you see fit. Gotcha. It's entirely possible since I haven't seen them. They threw them out 100 percent and just started from scratch. But I certainly turned in uh, scripts two and three of the series. And I had plotted out a first season arc for the show. So. What could have been? Yeah. What could have been? All right. Well, let's talk about the show uh, in and of itself right now, because one of the really interesting things is as this episode starts up, we get a live action intro, which surprised the hell out of me. Same, same. <laughs> I, was, I thought maybe I had the wrong not link. Expecting that. I thought it was the yeah. wrong link or something, because I was like, this is supposed to be a cartoon, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and here's the thing about it though I didn't hate it I did not well, I liked the yeah. idea of actors playing these bigger than life characters even if it was for like two seconds and it was it was a little jarring at first but as I'm watching it I'm like this reminds me of a CD-ROM video game from the mid 90s uh, that I like the seventh guest or what have you yes. and I would have flipped if I was playing a G.I. Joe game and this appeared on screen I thought that was the coolest thing in the world so it allowed me to take myself back and really like experience it from that perspective that's an interesting take (laughs) Uh, (laughs) no no i like that sort of makes sense like thinking back to like when yeah that would have been an amazing thing in video games and they're trying to ape that and not like the great space coaster or something because that's that was a vibe i got like what why are you are they (laughs) are these the cartoon character Ooh, i'm not i'm not on board for this but uh, as a video game, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I'm more on the Chan side of this. Uh, uh, but it is, it is, you know, the Wikipedia page says that this was this was 95 to 97. 
and and interestingly set in 2006. So this was this is spot on for what a mid 90s like of the mid 90s look. Mhm. Oh, it everything about this is pure 90s. That's I think yes. I am a big fan and proponent of the 1990s as a decade. I'm a big fan and it probably has a lot to do with the age that I was during the 1990s and and that's when I really like grew up. And, and, you know, became the, the soulless dredge of an individual by the end of the 90s uh, that I am. But, like, look, this really took me back to just, like, a, a very fun time. And I'm, I'm honestly here for it. I did not have any problem with that. Now, the name of this episode is, a, what is it? A Summoning of Heroes. Mm-hmm. A Summoning of Heroes. Now, obviously, this represents, and Buzz, you can help me out here. Uh, I don't know if you guys name your own episodes uh, often. I know that's not the case. Um, but a summoning of heroes is uh, it's, it's just bringing all of these new Joes together, introducing them, introducing the villains and trying to introduce at least 20 characters over the span of 20 minutes. Yeah. And let you know that this is where we're going with it. Well, and I honestly, was, you know, I think there was a lot of success here. I, I thank you on that. Uh, that was the intent. As I said, if if. I had been allowed to story edit the entire series because I probably would not have tried to write every single episode. But if I had been allowed to story edit the entire series, there was an arc that I intended to follow through. And it would have ended in a upbeat but still in peril moment for the Joes so it could continue on for a second and hopefully third or fourth or fifth or sixth season. Um. Mm -hmm the type of, of menace that we had was was more flexible than Cobra had been in this sense. Cobra was always presented as this large and relatively efficient military organization. And it's it's just kind of hard to tell realistic stories about military organizations that can, you know, cross oceans and, you know, invade the heartland of America with nobody recognizing they're there until they actually start shooting. Uh, this was a much more, um, I won't say espionage, but it was a special ops kind of world. And you could, you could easily imagine people working in this demi world where, you know, you could have a small select team moving around the world and doing all sorts of stuff that would be uh, hopefully interesting to an audience. Yeah. That, what I got out of this pilot is, you know, as, as I'm watching it, you know, again for the first time uh, is because I actually, I watched this a couple of months ago and then rewatched it again just for this. So it was fresh in my mind, but as mm -hmm. I'm watching it, it really just occurred to me like, this at its soul, at its core, is like definitive Buzz Dixon G.I. <laughs> Joe writing in that you have three unique locations. You have aspects of different characters on a Joe team and doing simultaneous missions. Uh, and they all bring their different specialties to the table. And they're fighting an array of colorful villains. And I'm like, this, this is, you know, this is G.I. Joe as I know G.I. Joe to be. And I think because the soul was there that you brought I think that's why I think it resonated with me a bit more than say, I don't know anything I've watched in the last two seasons of this show. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not gonna lie. This, this intro with like, once we get past the live action intro, 
and then go into the song. I rewatched that like three times because it was so insane. The 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 music was so insane, yes. and then just like the the voice actors like screaming their name, and they're like <laughs> ballistic harpoon. I was like, oh, this is if aliens came down to Earth and were shown one thing about each decade from Earth's history. If they were shown this, <laughs> they would they would understand everything they needed to about this time period. <laughs> uh, I I. I was expecting, uh, because yeah, uh, at some point in the past, I watched the first 30 seconds of this thing and I was like, oh no, we're going to get done with Deke and it's just going to get worse. Um, so then like when I watched it, I found that I was very much not vibing with the extreme uh, attitude and even the look of it. Although uh, I saw that it said model stylist Bill Sienkiewicz and I'm wondering if like uh, he was actually... A, I'm not even sure what a model stylist does, but I'm wondering if he had a hand in the design of the characters. Um, but like, uh, like, yeah, the, a lot of it just was not clicking with me. But the story itself and like all of the things that happened, I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, I get this. No, this makes sense. This is like all of all of this is as it should be. So I was really <laughs> torn because I was like, I hate this. I yeah. don't hate this. Yeah, what is happening? You don't seem like a '90s extreme guy, Chan. I mean, I lived through it. Um, Wait a minute. I, are you trying to say I I do sound like a '90s extreme guy? <laughs> Look, yes. Could I rebrand myself? This? Why didn't when I was wrestling? Why didn't I come out in neon spandex as the '90s extreme guy? I yeah. think I missed an opportunity here. Where's my time machine? Yeah, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz, uh he was um he came in through this uh indirectly through me because he was also one of the major contributors at Penthouse Comics oh, and i think okay. i may have uh i may have been if i didn't introduce him to the um uh people doing the show as a potential you know artist that they could work with uh i was certainly delighted to find out that they had already had him in their their radar range so to speak because uh you know he he it's it struck me he would be a very good choice for this this sort of material nice so yeah he's oh, great. absolutely and i i will say i liked the character design in that one again I, I i'm comparing it more so to the deke era because that's just where we lived for an extended period of time but the color scheme in the deke era is like everybody's wearing kind of beige and green and no matter who you are, all your uniforms are redesigned to look that way. And everybody was sort of homogenized into looking at the same. So one of the things I appreciated was, look, I got a ninja guy with a face mask. You know, what is he wearing? Like purple? Great. I'm here for that. You got some guy with like dreadlocks and sunglasses. He looks different. I could tell him in a crowd, you know, I had yeah. a little bit of trouble with Stone and Savage at first because they're both sort of the Duke equivalent characters and they're like one one a on the team and they were kind of used interchangeably in the scenes a little bit. So I'm still struggling with that, although I think Sergeant Savage is giant like like power armor chest, like the super soldier figure from back in the day. Uh, but uh, but the thing Sergeant I liked about Savage. it is what. Sergeant Savage was a carryover from a previous attempt to do a World War II era GI Joe. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. And they had they had gone so far as to do some preliminary artwork or something. They may have even done a comic book as a sampler to see what it would look like. And they just didn't get positive enough feedback from retailers that this would be a, a good toy line to launch. But they had seriously considered doing a World War II era um, 
G.I. Joe series. Well, uh, we... as, as toys, I should say. And so Sergeant Savage was carried over from that. We watched an episode of something. Sergeant Savage yes. and the Screaming Eagles, a, right? There was a, a pilot made of Sergeant yeah. Savage and his Screaming Eagles. It. And it was sort yeah. of, yeah. And that was like the, the spiritual successor to G.I. Joe in its own way. And that acted as a precursor to G.I. Joe Extreme. And that the only character that sort of made its way through to here was Sergeant Savage, Mm -hmm. Uh, from that one particular pilot and they sort of like launched him as like the main character of this series um and i will say the one thing that did throw me off is the fact that one of the joes is named metalhead and i naturally made the assumption walking in the door that this was metalhead from deke era somehow the misfit of cobra had now turned a thing and they've rebranded himself and he's metalhead still but he's now a member of the joe team because he saw the light x y and z but it turns out those two characters have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> right. And I'll, I'll say, just referring back to the color scheme in Deke, not having seen it, I'll, I'll bet you a dollar to a donut, Andy Hayward got a bargain on tan and green paint. <laughs> <laughs> that feels right. Feels right. If you like khaki, orange, and light green, then then boy, you loved every uniform in the Deke era G.I. Joe. <laughs> Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay, so this is a classic G.I. Joe plot as we open it up because, look, there's a science symposium in a, in a what, a, a generic Eastern European country or like Lithuania or something like that. Kazakhstan? I forgot. It was something like that, though. It was an Eastern bloc. And and all the scientists, the symposium gets attacked by uh, Scar, which is the new Cobra. It's now known as Scar. There is no Cobra in this world. Cobra has apparently been defeated. And we can live. Yeah, soldiers, so they, soldiers of chaos and anarchy and ruin. That's what I liked it, it. That's what it stands for. It's a lot of ands. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what is it? So career? I, I, it doesn't really work unless you take out those uh, particles. Uh, uh, so they attack. They steal the scientists. They also take the scientist families. Good touch. I and like so this. Now it's it's kind of dark. I like that they're messing with it's families. It's real dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's it, it's it harkens back to the Sunbow era episode where the Cobra steals the family members of the Joes and then forces them to like a- a- attack the Joes wearing those suits. Ooh, that was and a good that, one. Look, yeah, really, really good two part uh, episode. It kind of hark not it didn't go quite that far, but it just reminded me of it. And so, yes, yeah, so the scientists have now taken the families uh, uh, or the, the scars, taken the families of the scientists, put them on three different places around the globe and basically told the scientists, you have to build us this mega weapon or we will do terrible things to your family. Now, one interesting character moment is this character whose name I completely did not pick up the entire episode. And I feel bad about it, which is the guy with no shirt on who's got the metal hand and the eye patch. And I liked this character. Uh, Wait, he's got you a mean the guy, look, look into the guy who sounds like Soundwave? Yes, the guy who sounds like Southwave, but not Frank Welker. I would point that out. Um, Harm must come to the children. They are not to blame for my torment. Really, I got more Dr. Claw than Soundwave. I was thinking Dr. You know, Claw, yeah. 50-50, yeah. Uh, if you've ever listened to uh, the Soundwave voice broken down before the vocoding there's actually one uh there's one bit that slipped into the uh, uh actual episodes that they forgot to put the vocoder uh, effect over oh and that's what he sounds like 
before you add uh, that extra stuff. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I guess that all makes sense. That all holds up to me. Well, I like the fact that he has a special thing where he's literally in that one line. We learn more about that character and where he's coming from than I would say 90% of the villains of the Deke era (laughs) through one line where he says, don't harm the children. They're innocent. They're not the ones who made me who I am today. A, you know, he's blaming scientists and uh, he is now like a monster with a robot hand and he's real weird. We'll talk about him later. I literally, does anybody come up with his name? I did not get his name. Uh, I believe his name is Q Anon. I'm unclear, <laughs> but uh, Q Anon. Something wrong with sense. science and yeah. Yep. Nope. Here's the deal. This holds up. Um, <laughs> so, okay. When, this is where we meet the Iron Claw, but we meet the Iron Claw, not as his persona, but as his, maybe this is his persona. He's like a baron of some kind. He's a rich dude. And yeah, I did I actually, like the fact I actually that liked how this, uh, this differentiated it from Cobra Commander that we, we see who he is. We see his face before he gets the before he gets his mask on so i i kind of i kind of thought this was a nice a nicely nicely done to differentiate the two series that's what my my intent was was to to while keeping the flavor make it as different as possible and just like i said flip the script in as many places as we could yeah yeah and i i enjoyed it i enjoyed it he really gives off a, a Dr. Doom kind of a vibe in that he has a public persona, you know, the Latverian leader, diplomatic community, X, Y, and Z. But then on the other side, he's Dr. Freaking Doom. And that's sort yeah. of where I get with this Iron Claw character. He's got this nobility uh, alter ego that everybody in the world knows into what you said, Buzz, where he probably has a bunch of politicians in his pocket. Yeah. And you can't attack this guy. He's beyond reproach. But G.I. Joe has to focus only on Iron Claw. There's also a moment where the henchman uses his Iron Claw name and he freaks out because he says, you never use that name here. And again, I I just I I enjoyed it. I love the fact that he's he seems like he's trying to be a, a legitimate guy on the surface. And then this evil super villain just below the surface. <laughs> and again, this is the difference in in quality of villain between this series and I hate to keep bringing it up but the one we just came off of where you were not meant to take the uh, cobra as a threat. You were meant to think of cobra as a joke and that GI Joe was just going to play around with them. That's why they were physically beaten by kindergartners in one of the episodes but this guy literally in the opening scene of meeting iron claw you find out that he's uh you know he's this 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 other character who's beyond reproach you learn that he slaps his subordinate throws him in the dungeon to be murdered basically Uh just for calling him his code name in public because he's trying to keep up the masquerade and then he opens up the door to his basement and there's a god darn cult down there (laughs) and i'm like what what a difference I'm here for this. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like th- I can get into this, uh, even as, as it no doubt will take some sillier turns and what have you just uh, coming in the door. I'm like, I get what we're going for and I'm here for it. Yeah. I enjoy, I enjoy how, how dark it starts out actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it truly, it truly does set the table and set the tone for what we're, what we're trying to do here. So uh, this is where we kind of get our big, meeting of all the different Joes that we're about to have. And I, I, again, I like the way that they were all introduced. It made sense. Yeah. I, I, this, this was a very oceans 11 thing. And I, I dug it. I like that we see each person and what they do, because as someone who spent the first few episodes of GI Joe 
And my first few episodes, I mean, every season, all confused, of them used yeah. confused about who was who and who did what. I appreciate the fact that it's it's here's this guy and he does this. And now I'm this guy and I do that. So I liked this Ocean's Eleven ness of it all. I always have uh, this push and pull because it's very it's you know, it's it's very formulaic to say, like, OK, now we're going to bring all these people together and. I fall for it every time. Every yeah. time I'm like, oh, who's the new guy? Oh, and he's going to join. Oh, and this is the guy that does knives. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, I, lo- yeah. I love a good putting together the team montage. Now, I did have a question for you, Buzz. Now, because mm-hmm. the uh, officially Scar's uh, code name for the operation is Operation Scientist Snatch. Now, I, I thought you learned your lesson with Cobra La to name your placeholder something that they would never use. <laughs> I don't think I came up with that one, to be honest. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I just, it's the first thought I had was just yeah, like, it's going a lot all over again. I, no, no, no. I learned my lesson. You're, you're absolutely right. I learned my lesson. <laughs> and uh, if, if I had a code name, it would have probably been something, you know, a little more, you know, Tom Clancy-ish. But, <laughs> sure. Uh, like I said, you, you, you play the hand you're dealt. And in this case, I was dealt a hand that, uh, you know, I, it, it was a good hand. And then somebody reached over and yanked cards out of it. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it happens. Uh, so the three were introduced to Clancy, who's sort of the handler. He's sort of the guy at the organization, you know, that they'll, they're all going to be working their magic through. And then we meet yeah, Savage. Notice the name Clancy. Oh, uh, I, you know what? I didn't mm-hmm. think of that until you said it just now. Now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> it's, it's right there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then you meet sorry, uh, Stone and Savage, who are our two like alpha dogs of the pack. And so we learned we have to stop Scar. And, you know, once again, it, it turns it subverts my expectation because one of the first things they say is we don't work for suits. And I'm like, you're goddamn right. <laughs> <laughs> and and I still will, but I don't mm-hmm. like it. Right. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the, isn't that the rebel spirit in us all? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then we this is where we get we meet Metalhead, who's uh, uh, he's just a rock and roll guy, but he's got long blonde hair and he's not the same Metalhead that I was expecting, which, you know, I kind of wanted it, uh, but I get it. It's you know, I'm fine with that. We we get our big plan. There are three raids that we have to do. Obviously, we need more troops to do lightning a raid. So we need about what, two to three people per thing. So we're looking at about nine com- combined Joe's or thereabouts mm. to pull this thing off. So I'm like, okay, here we go. Here we go. And the, uh, the I just wrote here, man with the van. So I, I can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't, I don't really know what that means when I wrote it, but there it is. Uh, there's a man with a van. I like it. And this is where we meet Mayday, who's going to be the lone female character. Uh, I'm happy there's a female character at all. After again, in the Deke era, women were only there for exposition. And if, if even no, that. exposition implies that they actually spoke. That's fair. <laughs> I think I think they let Scarlet talk in two episodes, giving exposition, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I gotta say, just as a sidebar here, uh, Gina. Uh huh. Um, the 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 Twin Peaks movie, what Walk Through the Fire or Fire Walk with Me, uh-huh, whatever it uh-huh. was, where there is a major exposition scene told in interpretive dance by a female <laughs> character. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. was like one of the most insane scenes put in any movie ever. Yes, yes. 
<laughs> I mean, why didn't we get that here? I guess is what I'm saying. I could have gone for have it. the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I, I, can't, I can't blame you. So they say Mayday, she's the best pilot that we're going to have. And then they're like, and then, you know, a little misogyny creeps out. He's like, I don't work with dames or whatever the heck he says. And she's like, oh, how about putting it up your nose? And then she drives like a crazy person in between cars and flying off of cliffs and flipping upside down. And she just like crushes it. Pure stunt driving. So obviously that she's got the goods. She's proven it to him. And I just wrote here, wow, that scene was like more action than I was expecting out of what I was about to see. Like there was a lot of good things that happened in that. Mm -hmm. And then so they get out of the car and Sergeant Savage is like, yeah, I still don't like these broads. And then she's like, oh, how about this? And then she beats the shit out of him. And I'm just (laughs) like, yo, yo, (laughs) let's go. I am here for this. (laughs) Again, unexpected, subverted my expectation. Did not think that she was just going to step up and throw down. I assume that Clancy was going to say, no, dude, she's on the team. Shut up. I'm the boss of this. No, she's just like, you know, not only am I on the team, I'm a kick yo ass. And I was like, yes, yes, please. Yeah. I like that. She doesn't even, she doesn't even humor him for a second. She's just like, nah, I don't have time for this. (laughs) Yeah. I, I was here for it. Oh, and then dragon. I forgot to mention, we get our ninja character dragon. Who's an infiltrator, but also like a, a joker. So it's kind of two things you don't often see together. You know, your ninjas look at GI Joe before so storm shadow, and and snake eyes and you know and quick kick even to a lesser extent a martial artist at least they tend to have not not i guess quick kick is a little bit goofy but you tend to not think of the masked ninja persona as being a guy who's going to joy buzzer and whoopee cushion you but here we are with dragon and he Uh, is that guy hold on just a sec i need i have a question expert infiltrator we need (laughs) hey stone this sounds like a real kick Count me in. What is that accent? <laughs> okay. Where, where is he from? That sounded vaguely Asian it, to me. It did sound vaguely Asian. Uh, I will just call it Vaglesian. <laughs> okay. Is it is this like uh, Eastern Europe where like it's it, it's there somewhere? Just somewhere I mean, in the continent of. To be fair, Chan, anytime I hear somebody from South Africa talking, I assume that's a made-up Australian accent. Like that does mess me up every single time. It actually- uh, when I first heard uh, African um, in, uh, I guess it must have been on NPR, and I was like ten years old. I'm like, why are they doing a fake French accent? And then my mother had to explain colonialism to me, <laughs> and it was a whole thing, and so that's that's why I am the way I am now. Uh, it actually sounds a little bit like. Like if you've ever seen a movie that's been badly dubbed where it's it's sort of that overly precise like, haha, we will go here. Uh, oh, OK. No, that was the that was the original um, Speed Racer, because, you know, <laughs> the Speed Race, the Japanese don't or they didn't animate to lip movements. Oh, they just animated the mouths opening and closing to to accommodate the length of the dialogue. And frequently they would post dub their own shows. They would they would oh, wow. animate it and then dub it in later. So being Japanese, there's also a different cadence, a different uh, number of words and syllables and everything else. They don't exp- it's not a one to one translation when you translate. So when the show was brought to the United States and they're dubbing it into English, the Americans are going, well, we have to have them say something every time the mouth is moving. So you'd get dialogue like, 
I must win the race, and to win the race, I must go fast, and to go fast, I must put my foot on the gas pedal. And, and it's just like, you know, we know this. Yeah, just cut to the race, guys. <laughs> I do. Yeah, that is one good thing about those old, like, style, like, 80s and 90s animes is when the lips would be going, and you could just tell, like, look, I've got five seconds to say a lot of information here. Mm-hmm. And so you could just you could just feel the voice actor just sort of bearing down and being like, and then we will go to the throne, and then when we get to the throne, we will. You know, and it's like, ah, okay, I like it. Uh, and here's the deal, though. Uh, I, I love the accent, Chan. How dare you? Uh, that voice actor should get... Uh, no, no, no. Uh, if he has a Venmo, I want to send him more. Not complaining, <laughs> just asking. <laughs> uh, really fun. So let's meet some more characters, Chan. As you like to say, ballistic. How fun was this scene with ballistic the marksman? Going to a carnival and winning every prize because he can't miss any shot he takes, whether it's basketball or throwing at the cans or whatever. And he is cleaning out with no joy. Also, there is no joy in what he is doing. He is just cleaning out the carnival because he bleeping can. And I, I was laughing uproariously at this bit. <laughs> I was a big fan. And, and then, and then of course, somebody tries to rob the uh, carnival and to save the cat moment. He throws a ball that ricochets off like two or three things, drills the guy right in like his butt or something, and then knocks him over. And and then the authorities take him away. Now, why the carnival? Now, first off, carnival, why you were sitting around with two briefcases full of money as all of the money in the carnival? I mean, that's a bad plan. And maybe you should have been punished something for it. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. saying you should have been robbed. I'm not saying you mm-hmm. earned the crime. I'm not trying to say you were dressed sexy. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is two briefcases with all your money is not a good plan. This feels like ex- this is exactly how I think a, a carnival operates. Is like they they just take briefcases of money from stall to stall, pick up all the money, and then just have them behind the popcorn. I guess I don't know. It I, is it is actually, and I I I'm, I bring this up because the uh, one of the projects I'm working on now, I actually had to do some research into how carnivals operate. Boy. That is actually a very secure way of doing it. You have to really? understand carnivals operate on a cash basis. It's, it's, their motto is GTFM, get the fucking money. (laughs) And they will do anything and everything to get your money. And they build into their system the assumption there will be graft up and down the line. (laughs) The, 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 The persons who run the carnival expect to get half the money that the carnival generates. Wow. In any particular day. They know that the half that they get is only the official half because everybody below them is, is ripping them off. And they are being ripped off by their employees. So if you have a guy that's operating the, uh, the bean toss, if he owns the bean toss, uh, he's supposed to give, I can't remember the exact figure, let's say 30% is supposed to go be kicked up to... Um, you know, the people above him, well, he's going to keep more than that. He's going to pocket some of it, okay? And and so they go around. They have people going around on, on, on like an uh, even more than an hour. I mean, it's a, it's a constant thing. They go around from vendor to vendor, and they just rake off, like, you know, give me 90% of what you've got right now. And they hand it over because the money is flowing in. It is never flowing out, mm-hmm. you know? And so they'll hand the money over, and and of course they've already pocketed about about ten to twenty percent of what they hand over. <laughs> um, 
and 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 this is just assumed from the very beginning. Oh it, it is a completely corrupt environment, but within the context of everybody understanding the level of corruption, it works very efficiently. Boy. You just recognize everybody's a crook, everybody's stealing, but we've agreed this is the amount you're allowed to steal. <laughs> Buzz, you've just described almost every corporate restaurant I've ever worked for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering why you were talking about Congress when we were supposed to be talking about the carnival. <laughs> what was all that about? It's just there's an understood Congress grip. Congress you know? doesn't have characters with red rubber noses. <laughs> I mean, not yet. Give it five more years, Buzz. We're well on the way. God bless. G.I. <laughs> Joe will return after these messages. Do you ever find yourself thinking about who would win in a fight between Goku and Superman? Hi, I'm James Gavsey, and on the Who Would Win show, me and my co-host Ray ignore anything important happening in the outside world and debate fictional battles between characters from comics, movies, and video games. We got a new show every week, and almost always am I the winner. Yeah, <laughs> not true, Ray. In the past, we've discussed such matches as Captain America versus Darth Vader, Solid Snake versus the Iron Giant, classic matchups like RoboCop versus Terminator, and even the Muppets versus Sesame Street. That one was crazy. So if you're a fan of geek culture and love a spirited debate, check out the Who Would Win Show wherever you get your podcasts, or check us out at whowouldwinshow.com. The Cobra Mamba is a fast attack copter with laser guns and missiles. The Mamba sides detached to become a tech pod. Triple threat, meet us yet, Cobra Mamba! Go, go! Nobody beats the Joe, the real American hero! Cobra Mamba and other vehicles and figures sold separately. Go, go! Now, back to G.I. Joe. Um, so here's, again, another introduction scene here. Harpoon, who's, you know... You know, he, he's a harpoon guy. I don't really, I didn't really figure out what his deal was other than he's very he, he efficient. He drives the boat. He drives the boat. He's an aquatic guy. That's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. So what I appreciated. He's the Aquaman of the universe. What what I liked about this is this is post-mission. They've been successful and they go up to recruit him and he's sitting on top of like a dead robot that he killed and he's fishing and they go up and say like, yo, Harpoon, I think we need you for a thing. And Harpoon just responds with, and I love this, he just responds with like, look, I'm going to say yes to whatever you're about to propose to me. Just shut up so I can fish right now. <laughs> he, that is my attitude, I think, with basically life. <laughs> I'm going to say yes to it, but shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's just, I appreciated him on a one-to-one basis, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh my goodness here. Okay. And then uh, a striker. Is there a guy named striker somewhere? That's, I just wrote the word striker question mark. Oh, I think maybe that was the name of uh, uh, the character on the, uh, yeah, the character who was uh, the mountaineering guy with the crazy dreadlocks and the sunglasses Oh, I because don't he crashes, him. he crashes their meeting. I thought maybe they called him striker, but like I say, I didn't quite, I'll, I'll pick up the names as we go along. Uh, forgive me for this. But uh, uh, I, I got I got some of them. So and unlike Gina, I'm going to try really hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, cutting over here to uh, Iron Claw giving a speech to the scientists through his video, uh, you know, FaceTime that he's doing. And it's a very inspiring speech where he basically is like, you're going to make me a mega weapon or I'm going to kill your families. And I was like, that would inspire me. Mm-hmm. Mm. And at this point, the scientists say, look. 
we're effed. We're completely effed in this situation, but there's nothing we can do. There's no reason to help this guy because he's just going to kill us and our families after we make the mega weapon anyway. So instead of making a mega weapon, let's make a mega bomb and blow this place out. At least maybe our families might have a chance then if there's nothing to tie them to us anymore because we are all dead. He says with tears in his eyes. And I am like, this is not the same G.I. Joe. (laughs) This is dark. And I am here for it. Yeah, I dug it. I, I I dug that they were like, let's suicide bomb this place because who cares? And let's take Iron Claw out with us. Yeah. Let's make sure the bomb is big enough to do that. And I was like, holy shit. This is where we're at. This is, dare I say it, extreme. <laughs> G.I. Joe Extreme. And now, Chen, this is where I asked you to do a music poll because now we're doing the missions. We got three missions going at the same time, and then there's just this wild rock beat playing underneath, no dialogue, as G.I. Joe gets going into their missions. Could we hear a little bit of this? Ah, yes, the 90s. Home of funk metal and its (laughs) derivatives. I am so offended that you thought that that sounded like Rage Against the Machine. I think that it sounded like a sound like Rage Against the Machine. That's what I got out of it. <laughs> a sound like from Mordred, maybe, but not okay, okay, Rage Against the Machine. You know, hearing it a second time, it sounds less like Rage Against the Machine to me. But in the moment, that's what it felt like to me. It was a little bow wow, chicka, bow wow, chicka, chicka, chicka. No, no, no. And, that's the porn beat. That's yeah. the oh, porn excuse beat. Me. Yeah. Bow wow, excuse chicka, me. bow. It's the porn beat. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I I had no input over the music other than to indicate, you know, maybe, you know, use your theme here or that. Uh, but I will say, um, what was the, the John Carpenter film, Madness in the title? Uh, uh, Mouth of Madness. Mind of, Mind of Madness? Mouth of Madness? Mouth of Madness, yeah. I love the theme he wrote for that. There are times I just crank it up, you know, all the way to 11 and just let it go. Oh, snap. Uh, it was, a, it was like a really great, um, th- this kind of metal theme that you're talking about. Man, I want to hear yeah. it now. Chan, oh, find it's it. Great. It's great. <laughs> He's tour- he tours with it now with his son. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, it's it's like he, Carpenter oftentimes, you know, revisits his own musical themes and whatnot. And you, you understand that all musicians will do that. But this one was like, this is like the most John Carpentery thing he's he's done since uh, Halloween. Mm-hmm. So uh, wow. it's great. It's great. No, I I really love it. No. Anyway, sorry. Oh man, I'm going to buy it right now on iTunes. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I, I th- here's the deal. I think it's the right one. Uh, hold on a sec. I'm going to da- I'm going to download it in a sec. I'm going to play it through <laughs> my mic, and it's not going to work at all for the podcast. I <laughs> just want to make God. sure it's the right one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can probably find it on YouTube. Just just go to YouTube. And, oh, I just and dropped the ninety nine cents, Buzz. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I, all right. No, no, no. John Carpenter deserves that money. He deserves okay. all that and more. No, I was just saying if you wanted to sample it before you bought it. I don't know if you guys can hear that. Yep. It it starts slow, but wait for it. Uh oh. Uh oh. Oh boy, this is everything I love about music. 
<laughs> okay, well, yes, Isn't here's the deal. Great? That rocks, and I'm I'm happy I dropped a dollar. John Carpenter, you're welcome. <laughs> I don't need look, I don't need much uh coaxing to spend money, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. That was fantastic. And here's the deal. Had they played that under the mission theme, maybe it would have been even better. Yeah. <laughs> now we we cut back to the shirtless guy I mentioned earlier with the metal hand and the eye patch. And what did we agree what his name was? Stinky? What was his name? Uh I believe his name is uh uh Wreckage. Wreckage. I would have not gotten that from anything. Uh Wreckage. He we find out we 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 go further with the story. He hates scientists because they did this to me. Without saying what it is, that's called creating drama. <laughs> that's called creating a through line to then explore later. That's called good writing. Good job, Buzz. Now, Thank you. one of the very interesting and exciting things that I saw that kind of like, I don't know what it is, but uh, he comes in to throw, he throws a whole like five pieces of food on the ground where the wife and child of the scientist are, are in this jail cell, right? And he throws the food down on the ground and the wife stands up and she says, you know, hey, you can't do this. We're expendable. You're going to kill us anyway. And the kid just dives at the food and eats all the food. And I've seen Gina Ippolito's backstory. I think this is actually (laughs) where she came from because that child does not save any food for her mom at all. (laughs) And I noticed it and I kind of don't like this child very much. Be you know, ration it. There's two of you in this cell, kid. Nah. Don't be a tool. Nah, yes, it'll, it'll all work out. Eat it all. Eat it all yourself. Yeah. I had a feeling yeah. Gina would disagree with me there. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm, I have a feeling that your daughter would disagree with you there and you put up with it. <laughs> oh, man. If I just put some goldfish crackers. No, she shares. I will say right now. I don't want goldfish crackers, but gosh darn it. I eat goldfish crackers. You don't want goldfish crackers? Sure what kind everyone... of monster are you? They're delicious. I, Gina, I would only say that uh, perhaps in the future you will have the experience, but after enough time, you don't want goldfish crackers nah, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. False. Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, My Neighbor Totoro, one of the greatest movies ever. After 90, 95 goes, eh, not the best movie. No, there's <laughs> That's some flaws. The thing. Gets a little grating, just saying. <laughs> You eat goldfish crackers five times a day for mm-hmm. three and a half straight years. For example, could be anybody. Mm-hmm. anybody. I'm just saying you get tired of goldfish crackers. Nope, not me. Bring, uh, bring those to, over here. Welcome to My Three Dads, the show. Where welcome we to My Three Dads. Yeah, that'll be the next conversation we have. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Uh, so they end up getting rescued out of there anyway by the Joe team. And they use a zip line. One of my favorite things is the grappling hook zip line. And they shoot the family down in it. Uh, enjoy the side of that mountain that you're about to hit. <laughs> wife and child of this scientist i didn't really see him set up a safe landing i just saw him shoot the gun and put them on it Uh, another quick uh child aside we have a zip line at the preschool and i was assuming that uh my child who was three years old would get on the thing let go of it and split his head open and never once i i I mean children are born and bred to get on zip lines so <laughs> even though i'm terrified of them i i totally buy this oh this zip lines are great we had one at my high school and it was delightful well, obviously you had one at your high school <laughs> your fancy yeah, high well, school with the my my, would, pu- my public new jersey high school yes go they on. would ride mm-hmm. the zip line over from between cliffs so they could look down and spit at the people underneath them that's my understanding <laughs> yeah when you say zip line do you mean uh ski lift ski lift to, to your... i gotta get in my gondola to go to school today i'm gina <laughs> 
Maybe the, you, you jest, but there actually are communities in the Andes where they have zip lines for the kids to go to school. I love it. <laughs> See, this is where I kept getting in trouble. See, when I was working on a video game called Call of Duty, uh, uh, surprise, uh, uh, what, they kept like, uh, often the devs would have us in to test things, show us a level, get some like snap uh, opinion based on the things that they were doing. And I think they stopped calling me uh, to come do these because every single time I'd be like, we really need zip lines. <laughs> <laughs> I think this, you know, here's where we could add a zip line in here and it'd be even cooler. <laughs> and, and they stopped calling me in because I would only suggest zip lines for every single level. You know, it's thinking a back to the scene, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but look, we can zip line into the bed. Yeah. Um, but it makes me laugh thinking I'm, I'm honestly having these thoughts right now, but it's making me laugh because I switched over to working on a game called Apex Legends. And what's all over the map on every Apex Legends map? Mother effing zip lines everywhere. No wonder I like it so much. <laughs> Here I could say add a zip line. They'd be like, yo, we need to add a goddamn zip line right here. Anyway. <laughs> a zip line on the zip line. Thank you. Oh, oh, a zip line that coordinates off to a branching other zip line. Oh my God. Let's go. Um, okay. This is where we get to, was it wreckage? You said, I don't really know what his powers are, but he holds up a remote control. He eats it and then shoots lightning out of his hand. Now I don't know how anything works, but I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't, again, and he starts shooting lightning at the, the ninja guy dragon and, and, and dragons like zip it all around. And there's just a wonderful moment here. <laughs> and you want to talk about taking this extreme kind of gritty, uh, you know, darker theme and then put something ridiculous in the middle of it. I loved this because he, uh, dragon keeps jumping up and trying to do diving kicks at wreckage. And the dude is so big. It's just not, he's not moving. Right. But then he, Dragon gets a chance to get one more kick off because the, the the hostages have escaped. And so Dragon flies through the air and we get a shot of just the end of his leg and Wreckage's face where he, in theory, is flying through the air at Wreckage. And he spends like five to seven seconds repeatedly slapping at him with the bottom of his foot <laughs> in the face before bouncing off of him. And I'm not going to lie. That made me very happy. <laughs> I... More that ridiculous. Was a, it was a very Liu Kang moment. That was exactly was a bicycle kick from Liu Kang. And I and I was here for it. Um cutting back to now, I don't think this was this was not Iron Claw. This is a different villain who is in his castle. So maybe it was, I don't think it was Iron Claw, though, because he kind of grew in size and looked like a zombie, right? So I I I I I went back and forth thinking about who this character was. Um, but Chan, we have my favorite quote from the entire episode. If you could please play it for me, uh, because the guy is in his little like uh, office in his castle, looks over, he sees Metalhead has broken in and he's currently working with the security system computer in his office. And he gets very offended, not just that, like, you know, he's being attacked, but that <laughs> he's being invaded uh, uh, subterfuge style. And he says, but the man's industrial complex is his castle. That's a great line read <laughs> and a great line. <laughs> yeah, I I appreciated that. Yeah. But uh, but also uh, like I liked the whole thing cuz he says intruders here. <laughs> uh, I'm a fan of all of the above. Now dude, it, who was this character I guess? Is this is I I'm, I don't I thought at first it was Iron Claw, but then when he started growing in size and looking like right. a zombie when he got mad with this Hulk-like power Chan, was he somebody else? Yeah, he I'm looks lo like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character. I also thought yeah. it was Iron Claw, but then, yeah. I did too. I'm looking at the Wikipedia, and I believe that's the character of Rampage, who's an Rampage. arms manufacturer 
So, yeah. That all that all ties together. And I apologize, Buzz. You know, this isn't your no, fault. It's okay. It's been a long time since I, I had anything to do with this. <laughs> I've I've as I've mentioned before, when when I leave a project, I put it down and I walk away from it. And I I begrudge no one who likes what another team did after me and and enjoys it. I mean, that's fine. Everybody approaches material at different points. Uh, but I've just learned don't don't try to revisit the past. When you when you're done, you're done. Just enjoy the experience and and walk away. Well, Buzz, I'm sorry to force you to relive the past like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's not, really all not, we do. I'm just I know, but I'm 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 just saying I I obviously did not have the best of experiences with this show. Sure. I'm I'm very happy to hear the positive feedback on the things that I managed to keep in. Right. Um and I'm glad for that. Uh but I I'm not going to drive myself crazy by watching other episodes and going, "Oh, they did this, they did that. They shouldn't have sure. done." It. No, I'm once I'm off of it, I'm off of it. I have I have no input or interest in it. And that's just that's just to keep my sanity because otherwise I, you know, I'm sitting there going, ah, they shouldn't have used that little pony. They should have used this one. (laughs) (laughs) No. And you know what? I think that's probably a piece of good advice for other writers out there of just being able to let go. I know even just in the little sketch comedy stuff I'd write, if it got rewritten, and they, and I thought that they they made it worse through the rewrite than better. I would just I would be sitting there watching the show, just being like uh, like the Godfather. Look what they massacred, my boy. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's it, and and you've got to take your ego out of it at a certain point, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. You got paid for it. Uh, uh, move on. Yeah. The number of times Gina has gone on about the kidnapping plot line that they won't let her do on the unicorn. Oh my just, god! Oh, you're getting eaten alive with jealousy, Gina. You just got to let it go. Yeah, you know your your idea of of incorporating the Deke uh, storylines and having you know uh, uh, Walton Goggins uh, have his own private zoo in an extensive Enterprises building. Look, Gina. <laughs> Well, let's just say I hope season three happens and we can work it in. That's all I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. I, I want this more than anything. <laughs> I'll see what um, I can do. Thank you. That's all we can ask for. <laughs> um, okay. So another interesting thing that happens here is Rampage throws this thing at Metalhead and drills him with it. And we see people get drilled all the time in G.I. Joe, but Metalhead is legitimately concussed by the effect of his shot and he is hit loopy punch drunk as they say his vision is getting blurry he's he's like a little wobbly on his feet and he can't quite think clearly uh, having- it is a it is a microchip intended to make him hallucinate well here's the deal it felt like full-on concussion to me <laughs> and i guess maybe i've had enough of them that's why i was reminded <laughs> Um, and I just I appreciated seeing actual damage come to a Joe. That's another thing you just don't see. You know, it's either full knocked unconscious or we're fine. Keep going. And it's usually one of those two things. And that's been the case kind of since day one. But you don't often see I'm dealing with an injury and fighting through it. So already out the gate, that made me happy as well. I love seeing people get hurt. <laughs> uh so Rampage chases them down the hall. He ends up letting in the other two Joes and they're going to try to rescue everybody. And Rampage falls in love with Mayday. I didn't love, <laughs> I didn't love that. We have one <laughs> female character in the first villain she meets. Uh, he falls head over heels in love with her. And, uh, uh, and I did like her reaction though, when he says, I think I'm in love. And she says, get over it. Yeah. I thought this was funny. 
That made me laugh. I did like that. I did like that a lot. I love how tough she is. I love how tough she is. I thought it was like a King Kong kind of thing because he's he's like in a monster mode now, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can dig that. I can dig that. Okay. So all the hostages and all the families of the scientists have now been rescued, but then Iron Claw makes a point of it to say, don't tell the scientists if they find out, like, they won't have the reason to keep working on my mega weapon. Okay, great. And so it's a good setup because, you know, later on, they, they don't know, so they keep the bomb plot going. Because actually, had they did know that they were uh, all rescued, they might not have tried to blow everything up. Maybe. Uh, it, it was an interesting take, and I'm glad that little moment of exposition happened. Uh, and this is where we get to where G.I. Joe actually fights a little bit smart. You know, we've gotten too used to G.I. Joe just showing up at the front door, kicking it in and fighting everybody, right? We don't see a lot of tactics, at least recently, uh, in the G.I. Joe team. So what I liked is they fly all these decoy planes at the main facility where the scientists are, and they all just get shot down. And it's like, oh, boy, we're going for it. But then cut to Joe's in the jungle being like, we're already here. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> and and again i i thought that was very very fun they attacked the base and we get a one-on-one matchup because stone uh flies in he slides under a door that's it's real extreme real 90s real action it's exactly the kind of thing you would see in every action film made in the last like 10 years because they've taken that sort of extreme ridiculous action sequence and made it the norm but here they are doing it in 1995 uh, beautifully stone slides in he's facing off a whole bunch of robots he's screwed 10 ways to sunday but iron claw stops and goes that one's mine i'm gonna beat this guy up let's go and they have a nice little battle yeah yeah yeah, yeah. then then uh then roadblock guy comes in that roadblock guy comes in <laughs> and every- uh, well what i like about this is yeah. through the ceiling I'm sorry, through a mountain (laughs) by shooting it with his machine guns. Can I tell you, this is the Terry Crews role, if ever I've seen one. Uh, I love this character so much because he jumps out of an airplane with no parachute. He's got two like mini guns, essentially, like blaster type cannons, and he is just shooting and screaming all the way down. This is extreme. This is when I think of 90s extreme. This one moment with this one character encapsulates it all in that he's shooting and shooting and shooting. He's using the force of the shooting to slow his fall. Yeah, He lands, blows a hole in the mountain, lands, and then says, we need to get through this door to get to the other side. And he goes, why would I do that when I could blow out this wall? And I couldn't I couldn't argue with his logic. It was pristine. I that's the thing is as 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 an old man, I'm like, what is even happening here? (laughs) And yet, like, cast my brain back to like a 14 year old boy. I've been like, yeah, this is. This is how the world works, right? <laughs> this is how this things is, really go. Once yeah. I graduated from high school, I'm going to be routinely busting through mountains with my my miniguns, right? Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at this point, the scientists reveal like, hey, we have 60 seconds until everything blows up. And I like the fact that mid-battle Iron Claw, of all people, stops and goes, I'm sorry. What was that? (laughs) (laughs) That made me laugh real hard because that was not the character I was expecting to break character like that. So that was very fun. And sure enough, everybody dives. Everybody runs out of it. And boom, the mountain blows up. Everybody gets out. And uh, uh, that basically ends the episode. We get a little epilogue where Clancy says, you know, you guys, Iron Claw's not done. Scar's not done. We need a team to covertly go about taking them down 
without necessarily opposing them with a full military force because of the, what the politics are in that. Are you guys willing to do it? Yes, you are. You're now known as G.I. Joe and you're G.I. Joe Extreme. And, and, and to really top off that episode, <laughs> after being told their name is G.I. Joe Extreme, them all being very excited about joining a team together, they shoot the name G.I. Joe Extreme yeah. into the rock of a mountain. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. They shoot yep. it in there, capped off by an explosion. Yep. And I, look, I'm dumb. <laughs> that made me very happy. <laughs> I can say with some certainty that that is the point where I was like, okay, well, I'm out. It did. It did last. A, it did last a very long time. It was so long. <laughs> well, you know, you had like seven seconds to pad at the end there. You know, you just had mm-hmm. to just ride it. It wasn't a 10 second beanie and Cecil freeze frame. But <laughs> At least something it. was happening. That's <laughs> right. Was now, Buzz? Did you write that into the original episode? Was that I, your doing? I think I did. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and thank you for that. Thank you for that. I will, Chan. Disregard what Chan says. It was needed, <laughs> and it was desired, and it was loved in that moment. That brought me a lot of joy. And so, and then, uh, you know, closing credits about to go, but we have a PSA. Welcome back to Sunbow, G.I. Joe. We have a PSA. Now, Buzz, I wanted to ask you about this because this PSA was basically word for word a, a uh-huh. previous Sunbow era PSA about don't tell people, you know, you want a prize. Uh, my family isn't home. I'll show up. And like, literally, it was line for line. The exact same with the exception of the character's name that got swapped out. So it was Sergeant Savage now instead of, I want to say, maybe Footloose or Roadblock, I forget who it was, uh, but it was one of the guys in that, in the original one. Now, uh, were you involved in the PSAs? Well, no, no, I was, in fact, going back to the original uh, TV G.I. Joe era, I was I was uh, invited and then officially uninvited to <laughs> contribute ideas for PSAs. <laughs> they said, uh, you know, come up with some PSAs for us. And I said, well, you know, it is a military show. We should do a public service announcement that relates to something military, like kids. Remember, when you're making your Molotov cocktail, always have mm-hmm. one quarter of the bottle filled with powdered soap, <laughs> so it will stick to the target when it hits. <laughs> and they get, thank you. We we don't need any more input. <laughs> See, those are the life lessons. I'm glad I didn't learn when I was a kid because I would be in jail. Oh God, I've got. I'll I'll say this. Uh, I've got in my office, hidden underneath stuff, so that you know, inquisitive grandchildren can't find it. <laughs> I have both uh, an original copy of the Anarchist Cookbook and <laughs> the Guide to Improvise Weaponry, which um, I, I promise you, if you ever if you ever want to survive a food fight in a cafeteria, this this will tell you how to make lethal weapons out of common dining instruments on the spot oh Oh, my goodness well here's the deal a a fan of both look uh we live in it well we're uh, we were on the precipice for quite a few years there of dovetailing into our next apocalyptic moment that we've all known was coming and we somehow survived it but that doesn't mean we've totally gotten out of the woods right so i think it's very important to have those types of things now uh i'm afraid to be on a watch list so i don't own those (laughs) I'm I'm sending my kid to public school in a few years, so I just want him to be prepared. Uh, he just shows he just shows up on day one with a, just a copy of V for Vendetta and nothing else. <laughs> Here you go, son. Enjoy public school. 
Um, so that, that was our PSA, which I'm assuming now, based on just this one example, that we're going to see every episode of G.I. Joe Extreme has you know, a PSA that's just a carbon copy of a previous one. And I'd be interested to see because it was a lot more sinister uh, uh, than the the one from the 80s, you know, the one from 10 years previously, where they just have a, a, a three-second freeze shot on the guy in the car with the shadows so you can't quite see his face. And it's the guy in the car making a decision. Am I going to run this Joe over and abduct this kid off the sidewalk? Or am I just mm-hmm. going to drive away? Mm-hmm. And uh, it got a lot darker than... <laughs> <laughs> that I remember the original being. I mean, the original still involves, you know, abducting children. So I suppose it was dark to begin with, but at least the guy was suave about it. You know? Yeah. It was the, he was offering free candy instead of a crowbar to the head. So I guess, I guess it was something more genteel about it. What am I talking about? Buzz. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. That is episode one of GI Joe extreme. Do you have any like final thoughts uh, uh, to take us out as we embark on the next GI Joe endeavor here on season five of knowing is half the podcast. Well, uh, no thoughts uh, about GI Joe extreme because I, I pretty much said my piece on that. Sure. Sure. Uh, I will. If, if you're interested, um, fill you in a little bit on the whole penthouse comics situation yes we we need a capper to this yes Yes, we know that you left one to go to the other but keep going yeah what had happened was uh after the original gi joe series i i had a a prolonged period where where my career had pretty much stalled out um I, i was finding it very difficult to get freelance assignments um you know just it it it's it's just the natural ebb and flow of of you know the writing business, you you have a, a period where you're golden, then you have a period where you're not golden. In any case, um, I was looking for work. I was I was pretty desperate for it. I I was very fortunate to get the GI Joe Extreme gig, but in one of those, you know, um, it either rains, it, it's either drought, it's either famine or feast situations. I should say. Right. Uh, at the same time, a uh, friend of mine, a guy named George Carrigan, who incidentally wrote a couple of uh, G.I. Joes for Deke, uh, George Carrigan and a couple of other friends had landed a gig at Penthouse uh, Magazine. They had gone to New York and they had been working with Jim Shooter on a variety of projects. They had done, um, I think, Sonic the Hedgehog and a few others for other people. And they had developed a line of superhero comics that they were trying to, to pitch because in the 90s, everybody was pitching a brand new line of superhero comics. Mm-hmm. And at one point, they came up with this Hail Mary idea and they said, you know, after sending this line to everybody else, we ought to send one over to Bob Guccione at Penthouse. And uh, they, they changed the pitch a little bit to indicate this would be R-rated material with, you know, nude superheroes and things like that. They send it over and they get a phone call from Guccione. He wants to talk to him. So they go over and uh, they, they have the conversation with Guccione and Guccione goes, I'm in. And he planned to do, in fact, they actually did a series of magazines called Penthouse Comics that were the same format, same paper stock as Penthouse Magazine, which was a slick, you know, legitimate magazine. It was uh, legitimate in the sense that it was, you know, sold on newsstands. 
And they started recruiting people to to draw this. Uh, George and uh, the the friends that I had were, you know, the the primary writing creators. But they hired a great number of artists. Uh, Art Adams was uh, hired. Um, let's see, Cully Hammer, uh, Bill Sinkevitz. We even got uh, Dan DiCarlo, and uh, they they hired Dan DiCarlo to do a R-rated comic in the in the style of Archie comics, oh, and Dan had been pretty much blackballed by Archie at that point because he had dared, um, you know, dared to to say, "Aren't I owed some money for Josie and the Pussycats since it was based on a comic strip I created mm. about my wife?" How dare he? And, <laughs> exactly, and they they pretty much froze him out, and uh, he did this uh, Archie style R-rated parody. And uh, immediately started getting work from Archie Comics again because they didn't want him out there drawing <laughs> R-rated. Uh, <laughs> they didn't want him drawing R-rated comics in the style of, of Archie anymore. So anyway, we're skipping around here. George was this when I knew first met him. He was this big, sweet, lovable, goofy teddy bear of a guy. He was he was he was big and bulky. I'll be I'll be genteel about this. But he was just this big, fun-loving guy, and you you really couldn't, even when he did goofy stuff, you really couldn't get angry at him. You just kind of rolled your eyes and go, oh, that George. Um, we, were, we were at a um, meeting one time where uh, June Foray was there, and um, uh, this was like a whole bunch of animation writers and artists talking with voice actors, and he said... Miss Foray, I've got to ask you a question. And everybody in the room <laughs> cringe <laughs> because, um, uh, you know, we had no idea what was going to come out of his mouth next. And it was, he basically did a flawless Bullwinkle impersonation. <gasps> and she responded as Rocky. And oh, it was great. that's but, so cool. But we were all like, oh my God, please, George, no, don't. Whatever it is you're going to do. <laughs> so um, for about like four or five years, when they moved, George and and my friends moved to New York. I I had no direct contact with them. I I you know you know encounter them at conventions every now and then. I exchange emails or phone calls with them, but I was not aware of what was going on behind the scenes. And after Penthouse Comics had been up and running for about a year, uh, George contacted me and said, uh, you know, we I, I want you to come and work for me. And I'm going, well, I don't want to go to New York and, oh, well, we'll make, we'll fly you out and we'll do this and that. And you can be bi-coastal. You can go back home and this, that, and the other thing. And I, I, to dodge him, I named a price that I thought, well, they'll just refuse this and, um, that'll be that. And I named a price and they said, sure. <laughs> oh, geez. And so now I'm, now I'm committed to, to working for Penthouse. So I'm, I'm bi-coastal. I'm, I'm flying to New York. I spend two weeks in New York. And then I come back to Los Angeles and spend two weeks. And of course, at the same time I say yes to George, I also get the, uh, the GI Joe gig. So I am, my time is split between the two. I am trying to do both projects simultaneously. And I could have done them if I had had, as I mentioned before, um, people who just sent my stuff to Hasbro let Hasbro decide what they did, did not like, and send it back to me. 
And we could have worked that arrangement out. I could have done both gigs at the same time. But I was finding myself increasingly involved in these nonsensical uh, discussions over, you know, changes to material that I knew Hasbro would want. And finally, it just became easier to say, you know, I can, let me walk away from this one and I'll just concentrate fully on, on the penthouse thing. Well, here's what happened in the, the four or five years that I did not see George face to face. George developed a very severe drug problem. Uh -oh. um, you heard of a monkey on your back. This guy had King Kong on his back. Uh, he, there, there was not a chem. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. There is not a chemical George did not ingest. When he discovered, when he discovered nitrous oxide, uh, the other people working with him went, "Oh boy, good! He's he's found something to to you know cut back on his cocaine use." <laughs> and um, George was spiraling into an increasingly dark place mentally, um, really severe problems with this, and. It was it was getting really awfully bad. He he literally lived in his office at the penthouse building. Oh, and incidentally, this is when the Unabomber was sending out mail threats to people, and and uh, uh, you know, so we had like this security because he had threatened to blow up uh, Bob Guccione or something, and so you know, you have to come through all armed security to come into the building, and Goodness. everything had to go through bomb detectors and everything else. So. We were working literally insane hours. We would work a 17-hour day, go back to our, our uh, rented apartments, crash, wake up, and then come in. And, and our, our day started when the rest of Penthouse shut down. We would be coming in you know, mid-afternoon to start work because the rest of the Penthouse, the, the real Penthouse magazine, wanted nothing to do with us. We were, we were a flipping zoo. <laughs> and... Um, the drug use was becoming increasingly, you know, spiraling out of out of hand. Uh, two of my my friends, I'll mention one by name, uh, Mark McClellan, and another one who I won't mention by name, Ben, and I'll explain why in a moment. They uh, they were in a company car, and as they were just clearing out, you know, the fast food that they had had bought while driving back to the office, they found a big wad of aluminum foil under the driver's seat. And they open it up, and it's you know several grams worth of cocaine. Oh boy! And and they go into George and say, George, you you left your cocaine in the car. If we had been pulled over and they had found that, you know, we could have been arrested. And George said, Well, I expect you if you get arrested to say the cocaine is yours, because you see that way you're in jail, but I'm out here where I can hire a lawyer for you. <laughs> and. Um, George started talking, uh, um, Guccione for various reasons, moved us out of New York proper, New York city, and moved us up to a hunting lodge on Guccione's upstate New York. Um, uh, what do you call it? Not a farm or ranch, but he had a, he had a large swath of pop property up there. An estate. Um, yeah. Estate. That's the word. 
uh, I was told by by George and Mark that the first time they visited him in his estate, they go in, it's this mansion, and they walk in, and there's this huge sunken living room, and it's just, it's like something straight out of a James Bond movie. And uh, George said to, to to Bob, says, wow, this is really impressive. It's like a Bond movie. He said, I, I, I halfway expect the floor to part open and a map of the Caribbean to be down there. <laughs> and Guccione goes, who told you about the map? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're living in this hunting lodge that they had. And it was a barracks-like condition, but we're doing the magazine. Uh, we're, we're living and eating in this hunting lodge. And George decides, since it's a hunting lodge, he wants to start acquiring firearms. And at this point, I recognize, you know, somebody is going to jail the hospital or the morgue, and it's not going to be me. And I, I came home and I talked with my wife about it. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to send George a um, uh, email and tell him it's, it's not working out. Uh, I, I don't think I'm a good fit and I'm just going to stay in Los Angeles. I'm not going back. And about two days later, I get this frantic phone call from Mark and he's telling me, uh, you know, George is out of control and believe it or not, you're the only person that he'll calm down for. You know, when you're here, he calms down. He, he regulates his behavior. When you're gone, he goes completely nuts. He says, you got to come up here and, and calm him down. We're planning an intervention, but we, we just need to calm him down, you know, long enough for us to get the intervention in place. So I fly up and uh, I saw George as I had never seen him before. Um, you, you've heard the expression, it was the drugs talking. Well, whoever I was talking to, it was an amalgam of chemicals or something because it was not the George I knew. And I was basically trying to calm him down, just get him to recognize you've got to regulate your material, you've got your behavior, rather. You've got an enormous number of people here working very, very hard to help you. Um, and you've, you've just got to let them help you and, you know, stop. You've got to, you've got to cut back on this crap. And George was not listening. He was blowing me off. And, you know, I gave it my best shot. But at a certain point, I recognized, well, you know, George, I'm not going to stay around until I start despising you. I said, good fortune. And I'm out of here. And uh, we shook hands and I left. And that was the last time I saw him. Um, Mark and my other friend took me to uh, the airport and when we were going to the airport, I said, guys, you, you have got to bail out of here right now because this is going to come flying apart very, very quickly. And Mark said, well, you know, I've sunk $80,000 of my own money in this. And I said, Mark, just kiss it goodbye. It's, oh. um, it's not going to get better. And I luckily convinced Mark at that time to do that. So Mark and uh, my other friend, uh, went back and they decided, yeah, this now we have to have the intervention. And Mark started shifting money in the official accounts to um, other official accounts that George did not have access to in order to keep George from further embezzling from the company. And they contacted um, Guccione, who was out of the country, in the Caribbean of all places, um, 
they contacted Guccione and said, you know, Georgia's out of control and we're going to try to have an intervention. And Guccione said, fine, we've, this is not the first time this problem has occurred in Penthouse. Uh, we have a, a facility that he can be taken to. Uh, just get him to recognize he needs to go to the facility. We will straighten everything else out once he's clean. But, you know, we want to get him clean first. So they were getting ready to have this intervention. And they contacted all the freelancers and said, guys, cash your checks right now. Uh, and there is not going to be any work, you know, in the immediate future. We'll be in touch. But right now, cash your checks as quickly as you can, because they knew the accounts were about to be frozen by Guccione. And one of the freelancers calls up George and says, hey, what's this about all the accounts being frozen because you're going into a drug treatment? Oh, and, no. You know. So George doesn't go in for the meeting that was going to be the intervention. Um, Guccione gets in contact with him. And again, Guccione, as I said, is out of the country. And he says, I'll be back in, in New York in 72 hours. I want you to stay at the hunting lodge. You know, we'll talk when I come back. And, uh, you know, I want, I want you to get uh, help. And he said, but don't move. Stay at the hunting lodge. Well, George and one of his, um, his, his um, what do you call him? One of the guys that was buying the drugs for him, who was also on the company payroll, they drive down to Manhattan. They go into the penthouse office. And you would think, well, the thing to do now is to clear out the office in the penthouse, their office in the penthouse office of all drug paraphernalia and everything else. And uh, instead, they just fell asleep and they were found the next morning sleeping it off by, uh, you know, one of the security guards. And the security guard contacts Guccione. What, what do you want me to do? And Guccione says, throw him out of the building. You know, that's it. If he's not going to listen and stay put, there's no point in trying to help him. So they throw George out. They bring in a, uh, a private company that had a, a dope dog team to sniff out any drugs that might be in George's office. And the dog refused to go in the office. Oh, the, my the, goodness. The amount of drugs <laughs> that they found in there was so overwhelming. It just a huge amount. They had to search every office on the floor because at night, George would go into other people's offices <laughs> and hide drugs in their office. Oh, no. You know, so if he needed to get drugs in a hurry uh, and his own stash had been cleared out, he could go find them elsewhere. Well, you know, they, they fired George at this point. They officially terminate him. And George, um, it's very hazy what happens over the next week. but. It ended with George taking a uh, going to uh, the Marriott Marquis in downtown Manhattan, and he asked the uh, people in the lobby, says, how high is the atrium in here? And they said, 44 stories. And he said, that'll do. Oh, no. And he went up oh, no. to the top, and he put on a set of headphones, and I'm guessing he was listening to a James Bond soundtrack, and he just leaned over backwards oh. and went all the way to the, to the bottom. Um, 
very, and I'm going to spare all the gruesome details here. And this is why I am not mentioning the other friend by name, because I like that guy and I don't want his name smeared. I'm mentioning Mark by name because what happened to George had a profound effect on Mark as well. And a few years later, Mark was in a situation where he thought it was better to take his own life. Oh my goodness. Mm. And, um, you know, this is what I was going through at this time. And it completely and totally devastated me at the time. And my career literally came to a grinding halt. I think I got one or two small gigs thanks to Flint Dilly throwing me, you know, some some small things like, uh, you know, writing extra dialogue for a video game or something. Mm -hmm. But my career was pretty much over at that point. And uh, my wife, my wife worked for UCLA and they were going to open up a new University of California campus in the middle of the state. And they wanted her to go and, and be there. And it would have been an enormous uh, you know, uh, increase in money and prestige and everything else. Okay. And I'm just thinking, um, you know, she, I'm thinking, what is there, what reason is there for her to say no? Why, why would we not do this? And I just had one of these com literal come to God moments. And I just prayed. I said, you know, God, if this is it, if it's the end of my career, just give me a sign and I'll go up to, um, you know, with Sunoke up to the middle of the state, and that's it. I've my career is over. Just give me a sign, and um, before you know it, the phone rings. Hey, it's Stan Lee. Would you like to work for me? <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know. Oh and then I get I get involved in Stan Lee Media. <laughs> and uh, if you've if you've read the new bio of Stan that came out a couple of months ago, uh, True Believer, I'm quoted in extensively in the in the chapter on Stan Lee Media. Oh, that's so awesome. It proved to be, you know, it, there's this saying, history repeats itself. You know, the first time it's a tragedy, the second time it's a farce. Mm -hmm. Well, if mm -hmm. Penthouse Comics was the tragedy, Stan Lee Media was the farce. <laughs> Luckily, nobody got killed. <laughs> uh, but um, it, it was a wild it was a wild ride, and uh, I'll just tell you, read the book, read that chapter at least, and you'll get an inkling of what was going on at the time. So wow. that's that's the story surrounding my, my work on uh, G.I. Joe Extreme. And perhaps if I hadn't taken the penthouse gig, I might have had the time and energy to focus on fighting harder to stay on the show and to keep the show on track and... You know, things might have turned out different. Who knows? Sure. Wow. My goodness. But you know, you you, you know, you take what looks like the better gig at the time, and then yeah. turns out to not be. And I think we've yeah. all been in that situation before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that you know, mistakes can get made. Uh, uh, absolutely. But you know, hey, we 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 got you here for this, and obviously yeah. pulled through. Now, uh, um, side note, and I've talked with you offline about this briefly, but. I, if I had you on today, and I know I'm following something super uh, 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 solemn and dark, I want to brighten it up just a moment before okay, we get out right of dodge. Ahead, please. Because please tell me about NFL Super Pro, because that is a Marvel <laughs> comic that you wrote on and oh I asked God. you about. And I know that you only had sort of some limited uh, uh, memories, but uh, please, I... What, I owned the issues that your name appears on and somehow it just, I just never noticed. I just never occurred to me uh, the fact. So when I went back and I was researching it for the who would win show a little while ago and your name popped up, 
I, uh, <laughs> it blew my mind. So I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I gotta, I gotta know anything about NFL super pro and then we'll get out of here. This is, this is happening, you know, a little bit before I end up, uh, with the Joe gig and with penthouse comics, I'm casting about for work. This is, this is before everything really dried up. I'm picking up little bits and pieces here and there. And I called Steve Gerber and I said, Steve, do you know anybody who's hiring? And, uh, he said, well, the only thing I can think of is call Bob Budiansky at Marvel. He might know something. So I call Bob Budiansky. I introduce him. I said, you know, Steve's a good friend of mine. He suggested I call you and talk to you. And Bob says, well, you know, I really don't have anything that I can, you know, offer you on, uh, do you know anything about football? And mm-hmm. I said, well, I, I played football for four years when I was in high school. He said, really? And he said, where are you? And I said, well, I'm at home. He said, well, don't go anywhere for 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, fine. And so I don't go anywhere. 15 minutes later, the phone rings and he says, would you like to write for a new book called NFL Super Pro? <laughs> and I said, sure, I'll be happy. Uh, I'm just curious. What, what, why are you offering it to me? And he said, well, we've got this gig with the NFL. We're creating a superhero for him. And uh, of all the people that anybody at Marvel knows, you're the only one that anybody knows who ever played organized football. <laughs> so, <laughs> Nerds. Gig. And so I get, I, I wrote three scripts for them. Uh, they, had, they had contracted with the NFL to do a special and uh, 12 issues. And I think they did a bonus issue after that. But the NFL basically took one look at it and went, yeah, this was a bad idea. We're not going to follow through on this. And so that's why it will never be collected. Uh, It'll never be assembled in one place. I I disagree, Buzz. My closet Mm -hmm. currently assembles it all in one place. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's not going to be assembled officially. Let's put it that way. That's fair. fair. And, uh, you know, maybe 150 years from now when the copyright finally, you know, fades out on it. But... um, Anyway, uh, they had two other writers on it, and the other two writers were approaching it with, you know, solid uh, superhero sensibilities. And I look at this thing, and I'm going, it's it's a superhero in an all-plastic um, football suit. And I said, you know what? You just embrace the absurdity. You just go, okay, fine. This is what it is. And I was heavily influenced by a comic strip called Tank McNamara, which is a, a sports strip about a, uh, uh, a sportscaster who used to be an NFL super uh, NFL professional player. And so I kind of patterned that clueless attitude and my take of the character with it. And I just filled it full of all the puns and dumb jokes and everything else I could. And it was just like, this is a ridiculous idea. Have fun with it. You know, don't don't try to make it a believable thing. It is never going to be a believable thing, <laughs> but it can be a fun thing. And so the three I did, uh, everybody who's who's talked to me about it has enjoyed at least those three. And so I'm happy. I'm, I'm glad that I uh, I I was able to do what I was trying to do. I, I will say this. I got the uh, Hopi Nation pissed off at me. That's right. <laughs> um, one of the few people I, to get a comic book pulled from shelves. Well, you know what happened there was this is a monthly comic book. And what I had done, which I think irritated them, 
was I had actually done some research. I had tried to find out, and I was trying to be respectful. I recognize now, yeah, I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> but at the time, I'm trying to be respectful. I'm trying to understand something about their culture, something about the Hopi Kachina religion. And I had written a story where um, non-Hopis disguised themselves as Kachina figures in order to cast aspersions on part of the Hopi tribe. And they are, you know, their machinations are revealed by NFL Super Pro and this other uh, Hopi character. And the Hopis took umbrage at that. And looking back, I have to say, you know, they're right to, it would be like, doing a story about the Catholic church where I've got guys disguised as saints coming in and, you know, doing things. That's, that's not being respectful. That's being exploitive. I, I was trying to be as accurate in my, you know, depicting the Hopi tribe and their culture as possible. And I think that's what was offensive was because I, I got, I got the details right, but I, I missed the fact this is not something that's that's suitable for uh, entertainment purposes. Right. The, the Xena TV show, if I remember correctly, had a similar problem. They introduced some, uh, some Hindu deities in uh, one of their episodes, and Hindu believers got really upset. It's like, no, this is not mythical gods of Greece or Norse gods or things like that. These are deities and demigods that we actually believe in. And they recognized, yeah, that that was the step too far. So the Hopis complained about it, justifiably. They complained about it, and Marvel said, well, you're right, and we'll see to it that all of those issues are taken off the stands by the end of the month. Yeah. (laughs) So in other words, they did nothing at all. They did nothing at all, but, you know, know, they, they achieved... They they acknowledged the Hopis were were offended. They promised to do something, and the fact the thing they promised to do was going to be done anyway is kind of immaterial. It's but, all that's um, all good. Well, yeah. Thank you for that. No, I I'm a huge fan of the series, and obviously, uh, not uh, not knowing your involvement and then finding out about it was really like a holy shit moment for me. <laughs> I had I, I was actually on a podcast. Uh, somebody was doing a podcast where they were doing the same thing you're doing with GI Joe. They were doing it with NFL Super Pro. What? And they were they were what? Just, yes, they were just going through it because they couldn't believe anything this dumb had ever been done. Okay, well, I need to, I, obviously they, I need to make a call because yeah, this is important they, to me now. They got they got to my issues and they contacted me and and they were just like, oh, thank God, it was a joke. Because if we, if cause they'd been reading it as if I was writing this stuff with a straight face, and and they were going, oh, thank God, you understand? It was a joke. Okay, now we get it. Now we're having fun. We're okay with it now. You know. I, I guess in my mind, even as a kid when I was reading it, it was like, well, obviously this is silly fun. Yeah. <laughs> this is not to be taken, you know, literally. I don't know. Yeah. It, it's fun. But anyway, th- yeah. thank you for writing that, uh, and thank you for being okay. a part of it today, Buzz. I think uh, I think right. that's the end of our show today. Okay. Uh, but, you know, always a joy to have you on. Uh, any uh, words of advice for the people at home before we get out of here? 
Yeah. Uh, whatever you do when you're creating placeholder names, create something they can't possibly use. <laughs> That's the advice I give to everybody. That, and here's the deal. We've been over it and we agree a thousand percent. Uh, guys, here's a couple of links you can find us knowing us half the podcast. Season five is now upon us. G.I. Joe Extreme, obviously. You can check out our Facebook group, facebook.com slash knowing us half the podcast or patreon.com slash knowing is half the podcast you can get in that super secret vault where we have like almost 500 episodes of this show a lot of it not found on the main feed including all the know your joe episodes if you really just want to support the show for a couple bucks a month that's great too i'm trying to do more chats and get involved more uh in, and now that we're in the new year and and chan has sent everybody out stickers and magnets uh for season four to celebrate what just was that's wonderful i've stuff. got my magnet i've uh, got my magnet yeah. it's up on display there it is <laughs> patreon.com slash knowing is half the podcast or you can check us out on twitter uh we are on twitter at gi joe podcast individually i know buzz you're on there as buzz dixon writer am i correct yep yes so go follow buzz he's a great follow and he has a lot to say on a lot of different things and a lot of great opinions about things i'll just put it out there uh so otherwise you can well, check just me. a lot of opinions just, I'll say. well <laughs> you know I, I happen to enjoy them uh, <laughs> you can find me individually i am at almighty ray at 999 rpm i'm at gina ippy and thank you all so much for being with us for this double length episode. You knew we were going to bring it. You know, we were going to come from some weird places and you knew we were going to take it in ways we were not expecting. You got it all in this episode, everybody. And to that, I say good night. Situation critical. Roll call. Do you ever find yourself thinking about who would win in a fight between Goku and Superman? Hi, I'm James Gavsey, and on the Who Would Win show, me and my co-host Ray ignore anything important happening in the outside world and debate fictional battles between characters from comics, movies, and video games. We got a new show every week, and almost always, am I the winner? Yeah, not true, Ray. In the past, we've discussed such matches as Captain America versus Darth Vader, Solid Snake versus the Iron Giant, classic matchups like RoboCop versus Terminator, and even the Muppets versus Sesame Street. That one was crazy. So if you're a fan of geek culture and love a spirited debate, check out the Who Would Win Show wherever you get your podcasts or check us out at whowouldwinshow.com.